morning, everyone. My name's Dan, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, we're working through uh, the book of Joshua at the moment. Now, something that's um, common for all humans is that we want our lives to mean something. We want our lives to count for something. And I think that many of us have a sneaking fear that we're going to be forgotten. That in a few years after our bodies have been laid to rest, that people aren't going to remember us. And I think that God has created us to feel this fear. That it's part of what makes us human. And why I think this is that you don't find many dogs discussing their legacy at the dog park. And you don't find many cats scratching out their last will and testament in the litter tree. And you don't hear of many goldfish putting down their memoirs for posterity. Yet as humans, we do these things all of the time. Because we uniquely, among all creation, are made in the image of God. And because of this, uh, this spark, it's, it's a, a divine spark that lives in us, we realize on an instinctual level that we were made to live forever. We were created to wander the hallways of eternity. And I think that this is why uh, we, we have myths such as the fountain of youth. And I think that uh, this is what gives rise to stories like uh, the picture of, of Dorian Gray, in which he stays forever young, even as his portrait grows increasingly older and more hideous. We were made to write out our story in the book that never ends. No one wants to be forgotten. We all want our stories to be remembered forever. We all want our stories to be written in indelible ink on pages that will not crumble or fall apart. And the children of Israel were exactly the same. Out there in the desert, somewhere behind them, with the bones of their mothers and fathers, their uncles and aunts, their grandmothers and grandfathers, the story of the previous generation was over. This story that had started over 40 years earlier with this line, once upon a time, In the land of Egypt, there was a nation of slaves. Their parents had had the perfect opportunity to live out the perfect Cinderella story, the mighty hero racing in on his noble steed to free God's slaves and to bring them into their true inheritance. But it had ended very badly for them. It it was not the ending that, that anyone was looking for. Bones bleaching in the desert, the end. You see, these slaves have been freed to tell an epic story of freedom and inheritance, but they threw their story away to wander in the desert and die. And their kids watched this happen. And as these kids grew up into teenagers, I imagine that they were praying that it would be very different for them as it was for their parents. And as you're sat here, you're very similar to the Israelites, to this second generation, to those who were born in the desert and are looking to be part of a grand story, a story that is remembered, that is passed on from generation to generation. And I doubt that any of us are hoping that our names are forgotten in the desert of forgetfulness, in the mists of time. I think we all want to be remembered, that we want people to inspire other people by telling our story but in order to do that we have to have a story we have to have something to tell to share and to pass on and for many of us like I've already said our greatest fear is that there's really not that much in our life that's worth 
passing on, that there's not much to our story. We're afraid that we're actually quite easy to forget. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 3. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 6, and our goal, uh, actually what we're going to cover today is chapter 3 and 4. So uh, without further ado, let's press on. Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving order to the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. Now, if you want to get your story published by a publishing house, there are things that you have to do. It's not enough to write the story and lay the completed manuscript on your desk and hope for the best. You need to send it off. You need to get it out there. You need to play by the rules of the publishing house. And it's the same for your life story. In order for you to live a life that's larger than you, that God can use to inspire others, you need to give the publishing rights to God himself. You need to allow God's story to take over your story. You need to trust God. And as you trust God, as you give God your trust, he will give you your story. Let me say that again. You might want to write it down. As we give God our trust, he gives us our story. And according to um, chapters 3 and 4 in the book of Joshua, there are three steps to God publishing your story, to God giving you your story. And this is what they are. We have to prepare. We have to participate And then we have to promote. And the first step in God giving us our story is is preparation. We need to prepare. We need to get ready. And that's what the Israelites had to do. They had to prepare. In verses 1 through 6 of Joshua chapter 3, we see the Israelites preparing for the story that God had prepared for them. That he was about to write them into. And as part of this preparation, there were three things that the Israelites had to realize. Number one is to realize that God is holy. And we see this in verse 5, where Joshua says, um, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. So we need to be in the right frame of mind, we, with the right understanding of who God is, if our story is to be his story. So what consecrate means is to set yourself apart for God's purpose, for God's use. And in the context of, of the Jews, of the Israelites, according to Exodus chapter 19, consecration would have meant washing their clothes, washing themselves, and not having sex. And that's not to say that sex is bad, or dirty bodies and dirty clothes are bad, but 
it was important that the Israelites were ceremonially clean because um, being ceremonial, ceremonially clean, having a clean body, having clean clothes, signified making a new start with the Lord. And abstaining from sex uh, meant that they were giving all of their strength and all of their self to the Lord. And so we also have to realize that God is holy. We have to consecrate ourselves and that we, re- we need to realize that he needs to cleanse us in order for us to be written into his story. And it's not about washing our clothes. It's not about washing our, bo- our, our bodies. It's not about abstaining from sex. But what it is, is about allowing Jesus Christ to make us completely holy and to cleanse us entirely. And this helps us to prepare for what God's is about to do. And as part of this, we, um, yeah, we also have to, to remember, as part of this preparation, that God is not only holy, but God is also first. And we read this in verse 6 of Joshua. It says, um, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And what this is showing us is that the Ark of the Covenant um, is in front. God is in front. He's leading. And in, 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 in verse 4, uh, we actually find out that the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be 2,000 cubits ahead of everyone else, or 900 meters. So nearly one kilometer ahead of the children of Israel, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And so what this means is that we have to let God lead the way. If we're leading the way, then it's no longer God's story. It's our story. But um, neither are we supposed to be you know, sat in the back seat um, where it kind of looks like God's driving. But in reality, we're just sitting behind him, whispering into his ear, I think you should turn left here. Oh, I think you missed a turning, God. God, I think you're going the wrong way. God has to be way out in front, leading the way. And here's why I, I love this, because it's as God is way, way out in front that we see the miracles. We get the best view of what the Lord is doing. We're not so, so close that, that we can only see this. We can see the whole spread of what God is doing. And it also means that we cannot take credit for what he is up to. So since the Israelites were a full 900 meters behind the Ark of the Covenant, they had a good view of what God was doing, and they couldn't take any credit. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was where God was. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence, and the Ark of the Covenant was a box with two poles, um, one on each side, and there were four priests who would, uh, who would carry it. And inside was the Ten Commandments, representing God's ethical and moral law, his standards, but also the box was sprinkled with blood from a sacrificial lamb. And what an amazing um, way to look at Jesus this is, that Jesus fulfills the law, and he brings to us also the goodness and the hope of the gospel. And so in the Ark of the Covenant, we see an early image of Jesus Christ himself blazing a trail, leading the way, like a pioneer. And so, if, so in order to pr- 
prepare ourselves for God to use us in his story, it's really important that we grab hold of this truth that God is holy, also that he is first. And lastly, we need to remember this, that God is powerful. Let's read verse 10 of chapter 3. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. And so the Israelites can take huge confidence in the power of God. It says that he will drive out the tribes without fail. It's going to happen. And since God is going to be the one driving out the tribes... This means that the primary attitude of the Israelites is not to be war-crazed warriors ready to kill, but instead to be trusting observers, watching and seeing what God does for them. And also notice here that Joshua says that the living God is among them. He's right there. Yes, he's 900 meters in front. He's holy, which means that he cannot be approached lightly. And yet it says that the the living God is among them. He's in their midst. And so I want us to realize what the comfort we can get from verse 9, 10, and 11 of Joshua chapter 3. Because what this shows us is that the living God is among us. He's alive and he's here. And then it says in verse 11 that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. And how more, how, how more profoundly could God comfort and assure his people than by saying these two things, I'm alive and I'm with you and I'm here and I'm also Lord of all the earth and I'm going ahead of you. And maybe this is what you need to hear right now that the living God through Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit is here with you and the supreme God is going in front of you. Then in verse 12, Joshua tells the Israelites uh, to choose 12 men. And he doesn't tell them why yet. He just tells them to choose them so that they will be ready when the time comes. And then in verse 13, Joshua tells the Israelites what's going to happen next. Verse 13 of chapter 3. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, will set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Now, I can imagine the excitement on the faces of the Israelites, as this message starts to get passed around this camp of two million people. Wait, what? God's going to part the waters? Hey, isn't that just like what God did after our parents came out of Egypt at the Red Sea? Now, I'd like you to imagine if all of your life you'd heard of the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea when Moses stood over the Red Sea with his staff and the waters were pushed back until there was a path of land in between these, these, these two walls of water. And now they're going to see something like this happen with their very own eyes. It isn't just going to be a story anymore. It's going to be their experience. And also notice that 
God says that the waters are going to stand up in a heap. In other words, this is no way, there is no way that this can be explained as a geological phenomenon. Maybe there's a fissure that opens up in the middle of the earth and the water just, just, uh, just pours down. Um, no, or, or, or that there's a landslide and then, and then the water channel's blocked. No, it says here, it says, it, 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 it says clearly here that the water that, whose natural state is to flow is going to stand up in a heap, it's going to be a miracle. And so what we've found out so far is that, is that God is getting his people prepared. First of all, by understanding he's holy. Secondly, by understanding that he's first. And thirdly, by understanding that he is powerful. And in response, he calls them to be obedient, not to run ahead, but to follow behind to consecrate themselves, to cleanse themselves for the work that, that, uh, that God's going to do. But he also calls them to expectancy, to look forward to what God is going to do. There's this hope within them. There, there's this excitement. They're, they're, they're sat on the edge of their seats or their rocks waiting to see what the Lord's going to do. And this is the first step of allowing the story of our life to become part of God's story we have to prepare, we have to, we have to get ready, we have to make sure that everything is right between us and the Lord. We have to confess, we have to repent, we have to turn from our sin, just like the, the, the Israelites. We need to recognize that God is holy, that God is first, and that God is powerful. And when we understand these three things, we become like the runner that's crouched at the beginning of his race, ready for the gunshot. And so maybe you're doing your own thing and you're confused as to why God isn't more present. Why isn't God using you? Why don't you have these cool stories of God like maybe other people that you know? Maybe you're frustrated with God's inactivity and his apparent unwillingness to use you. Well, listen to what Titus chapter 2 verse 13 and 14 says regarding holiness and usefulness. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says this, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people, that's the holiness bit, that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's the usefulness part. So there's a connection between holiness and usefulness. And if you don't care about holiness, then don't expect God you know, to use you. So are you taking God's holiness seriously? Is God first in your life? Is he, out, is he way out front leading the way? You know, do you view God as supreme, as powerful, as the literal Lord of your life? If not, then don't expect to see God working in power in your surroundings. Just like the children of Israel, you need to prepare yourself. We need to prepare ourselves. I need to prepare myself. We need to take this seriously. Now, there are some people that I love spending time with. They have story after story of God using them and then taking the circumstances that God has placed before them like, like an open door just waiting for them to walk through. And these people cannot only tell you of people that have come to know Jesus through them, but they can also tell you of a conversation that they had last month Last week, maybe even yesterday, that they had with someone about the Lord. And there was, there was, 
Yeah, there's this lady in my mind that I have that I got to know on the mission field. She was so naturally in love with Jesus Christ that it overflowed into her everyday conversation. She didn't just see opportunities. She looked for opportunities. She expected opportunities. She had her heart ready and her eyes open. And she knew that that God was holy. She knew that he was first, that he was leading her. She knew that he was supreme, that he was powerful, that he could do anything that's in accordance with his nature. And this truth and, and, and this conviction that weighed heavy on her life allowed her really gently to walk up to complete strangers and hand them a gospel or inform them that Jesus loves them. Now, if this is not your experience, my plea is to go find someone for whom this is their experience and simply spend time with them. Spend time with people who ooze Jesus. Ask them questions. Ask them their stories. Listen to them. Don't interrupt them much. Just listen and listen and listen some more. And, and it won't be long before what they have will start to rub off on you. And I know people like this here in the city that I, that, you know, that I know that spending an hour in their presence is the best investment I can do. And so when I have the chance, I love to meet up with them because they have the best stories. They have the miracle stories. And the more that I'm with them, the more I want their stories to turn into my stories. I want to have stories like that as well. And I start to wonder, well, if God can use them this way and they seem very normal, very ordinary, maybe he can use me in this way as well. And so my faith starts to grow and so don't, don't um, steer clear of these people because you're afraid that they're going to make you feel bad about what you're not doing. Don't let yourself off the hook. I really encourage you this. Instead, seek them out like a heat-seeking missile. Lock on to them. Hang on to them. Say, I'd like to, I'd like to have a meal with you. And let their passion become your passion. Let their, let their passion for holiness become your passion for holiness. Let, let their conviction become your conviction. Let their expectancy become your expectancy. Let their faith become your faith. Because as you give God your trust, he will give you your story And the first part of of, of getting your story, like I've said, is to prepare. And the second part of getting your story is to participate. And that's what happened with the children of Israel. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 3, verse 14. Joshua 3, verse 14, which says this. Um... So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water, water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, so the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried 
the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Now, the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. And I think it's pretty neat that the narrator recorded this little detail. And I think it's neat for two reasons. Number one is it hooks the reader right back to the crossing of the Red Sea that happened at the exact same time of year. It happened during the harvest. And so this new generation of the Israelites are being reminded by Almighty God that he's with them just as he was with their mums and their dads all of those years ago. He's saying that as I was with your parents, so I am with you. As I was there during harvest season a generation ago, so I'm with you during harvest season now. And so we see that this, that, that, that this wandering through the desert, that it has a water crossing at the beginning and it has a water crossing at the end. God is saying to them that your wandering days are now over. And so that's the first reason why I think it's neat that God, that, that the narrator mentions this because it links them back you know, to what happened after they left Egypt. But the second time, or, or, or the second reason why I think it's neat is that it says that it was at flood stage. And when the, when the river was at flood stage, it would have been not really possible for two million people to cross the river, except for a miracle, which is what God actually does. He, you see, what I've noticed about God is that he enjoys doing or making his job apparently harder. He lights the sacrifice on fire after telling Elijah to drown it in water, um, and then, and then we read in the New Testament how Jesus waits until Lazarus has, has actually died. He kind of dawdles. He hangs around. He, he holds off coming until after Lazarus has, has, has actually passed away. And then he wanders in the town going, well, what's happened? Because then it's not just a healing, it's a resurrection. And here God waits till flood season. He, he holds them back until flood season. And then he says, okay, go. And he could have told them to go earlier when the river was at its usual width of 100 feet. But no, he waits until the perfect time when the Jordan River is one mile wide. Why do this? Well, I think it's because he loves his children enough to want them to be in no doubt at all that he's performing a full-on, a bona fide, a real McCoy miracle, and which is why he doesn't want them to cross a puddle, he wants them to cross a flood. Because that is a story. That's a story that they will then tell their children. And we're told in chapter 3, verse 16, that the water stopped flowing upstream at this town called Adam, which was actually 27 kilometers upstream from this crossing point. So listen to this. God would have had to stop the water flowing sometime earlier. However long it takes water to flow 27 kilometers downstream, and he timed it perfectly so that at the moment that the priest's feet went into the water channel, that was the moment that the last water passed by and it was dry. And so God even had, you know, the timing of that absolutely down pat. He's emptied a water channel that's now a mile wide at the exact moment that the priests put their feet into what up until moments before, was a swollen flood channel. 
And then the priests walked down into the middle of the channel. And again, this would have probably been a half a mile journey for them. And then verse 17, verse, uh, uh, um, verse 17 of chapter 3 says that they were standing on dry ground. Then it says that the whole nation crossed over, over to the other side of the Jordan. And in fact, in chapter um, in verse 10 of chapter 4, it says that they hurried over. Well, how can two million people cross over a dry river channel in haste? How can they hurry over? How can two million people cross anywhere in a hurry? Well, they can if there's 27 kilometers of exposed riverbed for them to spread out and cross over. Moving on, verse 12 of chapter 4. We find out that the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over before the others. Now, if you remember... Uh, that, that, that these tribes, the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, were making good on their promise, on their deal that they'd made with Moses earlier, that if they were allowed to settle on this side of the river, then the men would go over the Jordan and help the rest of the children of Israel to settle that side. So it's really good to see these tribes making good on their promise. In fact, they took their promise so seriously that we read that, that, that they went ahead of everyone else. And all in all, there were 40,000 warriors from these two and a half tribes who crossed over the Jordan as the rest of the children of Israel watched. And it must have been an impressive sight. It must have been encouraging for everyone else. And then it says that the rest of the people crossed over. And then in verse 15 of chapter 4... Um, God tells, um, sorry, God tells Joshua to inform the priests that they have to come out of the river now, and I expect that's probably because their shoulders were getting a bit tired. That's a joke. <laughs> verse uh, fifteen says that uh, verse fifteen of chapter four, uh, no, sorry, verse fifteen of chapter three um, says that. Oh no, verse, verse 14 of chapter 4 says this. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. So now the children of Israel were looking at Joshua with the same eyes and the same, um, you know, just thinking he was a great guy, in the same way that they looked at, at Moses. This was, this was God's stamp of approval on Joshua's leadership. Now, what we see here is that the children of Israel were now writing their own story. They had prepared. They were now participating. They were no longer just hearing the stories um, of their parents, of the ten plagues in Egypt, of the crossing of the Red Sea. In holiness and trust, they were following God into their own story, one that would be written down and passed down from generation to generation to generation until ultimately ending up in our laps here today, written down in Joshua chapter four and five, uh, three and four, they had prepared, they had participated, and now all that was left was for them to promote, to make a big deal of God, to make sure that everyone remembered what had happened on this day in April during harvest season. You see, when God moves in power in our lives, He doesn't just want us to, you know, you know, to give Him a quick nod and you know, to carry on with our lives. He wants us to remember, to market, to proclaim him, to promote him to our friends and our families. And this is the last part of this truth, that when God gives us, uh, when we give God our trust, he gives us our story. 
Uh, because as, we, as he gives us our story, we tell this story to others. We promote him to others. Let's uh, look at chapter 4, verse 8, which says this. So the Israelites did as, as, as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. So we have to back up a little bit in, um, in order to understand this. So we're now in the middle of the crossing again, and uh, what we see here is God commanding, God commanding Joshua to set up two stone cairns, two memorials or two commemorative monuments made of rocks, one in the river itself and one on the new side of the river. And remember those, those men who were set apart earlier? Well, one from each of the tribes. Well, now they are given their task, and the task is to carry 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan River and to, and to move them, to shift them over to where the where the Israelites would be setting up camp for their first night on the new side of the river. And then what Joshua does is he sets up these stones that the priests were were standing on in the river as a monument right there in the middle of the river. And at the time of writing, as we read in chapter 4 verse 9, they were still there when this was written. And it's, it's safe for us to assume that when the river wasn't in flood, when it wasn't a mile wide, but when it was 100 feet wide, that you might have been able to see this mid-river monument under the level of the water. And so these cairns were there to, you know, to promote God, to, to, to cause people to ask the question to start people being curious about what had happened as we see this, and we see this in verse 20 of chapter 4, which says this, And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples on the earth, here's, here's the purpose, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. You know, God is not interested in us sitting on the sidelines he wants us to get involved. He wants us to really, really participate. He wants us to make ourselves ready so that we are ready to truly get involved. He wants us to be part of this story that's constantly unfolding um, in the lives of all these other people across the world who are participating in God's story. He wants us also to proclaim, to mark these times when God has proved himself powerful and faithful. And so if you're a Christian here today, you should be one of God's best promoters. But not every day 
is the Jordan River experience. Most days are normal, regular, ordinary days, which makes it even more essential that we are marking these Jordan River experiences, that we're creating cairns of remembrance in our own lives that pique curiosity in others and cause them to ask, what does that mean? Now, you're not going to build a cairn in the middle of your living room, but maybe there's a photo that reminds you of a time in your life when God worked powerfully. Maybe it was a healing. Maybe, maybe it was a miracle. Maybe it was a time that he drew especially close. Maybe it marked some kind of a breakthrough that could only be explained by God himself. Well, hang, hang that up and use it as a conversation piece. Let your children know. As, as your guests and visitors come into your house and they, and, they, and they look at that photo, you can explain to them, maybe it's a Bible verse that means a lot and God used it in, in a particular season of your life. Well, stick it in a prominent place and let others see it. Maybe, maybe at work, maybe on your desk. Maybe if you're someone who likes inking yourself, you could ink it on your skin. You know, use it to share the goodness of God. Maybe you're like a pastor friend of mine who recently put up a video on Facebook sharing how God had been faithful to him during a time of real depression. And he said, I'm not healed, but God has helped me. And he was sharing this as part of the Bell Let's Talk um, campaign. So what is your monument? What is your marker? What is your reminder? Something that's tangible, something that's actually physical that you can put up on your wall, on your fridge, on your work desk, hanging from the mirror in your car. Maybe it's a t-shirt with a cryptic statement on it. Maybe it's a date inked onto your forearm, which, is, which was that date when you nearly committed suicide, but God miraculously intervened. Or that date when you realized for the first time that the claims of the Bible were, were true. Or a date when you, when you were healed or you saw God um, really do something miraculous in your life. But whatever the monument is, the goal is to get people to say, explain it to me. What's this about? And then you have your story ready to share. You have your God ready to promote. And here's, here's the thing. is that As you start promoting God... It will lead you into further participation, which will lead to more opportunities to really promote him, which will, which will make you ready for more participation in the word of God, you know, or in the work of God, which will lead to more opportunities you know, to promote him, and so on and so on it goes. And before you know it, you have a lifetime of stories. You become that person who's encouraging others with your stories, and then they start wishing that they could have their stories too. They see your cairn, and they want to have their own, and they still, so they start preparing themselves in order to participate so that they can promote God. And on and on it goes, preparation, participation, and and promotion, which gives birth to more preparation, participation, and promotion until it's time. For your funeral. And instead of a couple of nice stories about what a nice neighbor you were, there's an onslaught of story after story of how you, you encouraged people and they were prepared in order to participate so that they could promote God themselves. But it all starts with giving God our trust because as we give God our trust, he gives us our story. Let's pray.
Lord, I just ask that uh, you would show us what are the cairns in our life that uh, we need to put up, Lord. And that we would do that and then we would let you use these, Lord God, to, to make people ask, what is that about? Lord, I pray that, uh, that we would be holy, that we would really prepare ourselves so that we, we are able to get involved. Lord, and I pray that we would not sit on the sidelines, but that we would cross that river, that we would, we would be intent on walking through these wonderful open doors that you've made for us, Lord, so that we can have these stories that we can share and that you, Lord, will be glorified, Lord. And, and maybe those of us here who don't have any stories, Lord, because we don't yet know you, Lord, I pray that our first story, our first Ken, would be saying, I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Um, I, you know, on... Yeah, that, that, that uh, you are real, Lord God. And I pray that, Lord, that those of us who are, who are sitting on the fence, who are scared about what... What worshipping you means, Lord God, I pray that, that, that you would help us to really take that step of faith. Lord, we, we need cairns, we need monuments in our lives. We need to mark these things down, Lord God. We don't want to be storyless people who are forgotten after a generation, Lord God. We want our stories to, you know, to be told over and over and over again until no one even remembers who it who it was about in the first place, Lord. But, it, but it's all about you. So I pray that you'd show us how to do this. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.